This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 13th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The trade war between the U.S. and China escalates again as the president lays out another round of tariffs, this time on $200 billion of Chinese goods that enter the United States. Dan Eikenson directs trade policy studies at the Cato Institute. He details how U.S. consumers, workers, and producers will take the hit. As you understand it, what is the latest round of uh, tariffs between the United States and China uh, actually worth, and where are we going to see them? Well, this is all related to the same investigation that the United States has been conducting uh, against China's uh, mercantilist technology policies under Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974. So originally, uh, the USTR came up with a figure of $50 billion of Chinese imports to assess with taxes, uh, with import tariffs. Um, and uh, they decided that they would do it first just on $34 billion. The other $16 billion is being vetted to make sure that, uh, I don't know, that, you know, th- that the right uh, interests aren't adversely affected. I'm not exactly sure what criteria they're using. But the Chinese retaliated to the tune of 30, uh, $34 billion, assessing tariffs on U.S. exports of $34 billion. And Trump said that, look, if the Chinese retaliate, that means they're not uh, getting their act together and responding to um, our rightful measures. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, we're going to hit them with, uh, with more tariffs and we're going to apply them to $200 billion worth of Chinese uh, exports to the United States. And that's what they've just announced. And this list uh, spans the, what's called the Harmonized Tariff Schedule. It covers all sorts of products, agricultural products, fish, meat, chemicals, textiles, steel, autos, machines, electronics, components. So it's really not particularly targeted. This, this uh, list is just a shotgun blast. And now in the crosshairs is about $234 billion of Chinese uh, uh, exports to the United States, which is about half of the value of uh, U.S. imports from China. Uh, and retaliation from China uh, can't take the same um, uh, effect in the sense that we've only exported – we only export to China about $140 billion worth of goods. So they can't go uh, pound for pound with us and likely their retaliation will focus on hamstringing U.S. companies operating in China. So how many Western companies are getting caught up in uh, tariffs on goods that are shipped from China to the U.S., both domestic uh, producers in the United States that would like to make use of some of those exports from China and Western companies that are that have operations in China that would like to ship goods to the United States? Sure. Well, I don't know the precise number, but, you know, to give us a shot at estimating that, I would say approximately half the value, a little less than half of the value of U.S. imports from China is value that comes from other countries. Uh, So other countries are heavily vested in Chinese production and assembly. Uh, so, uh, you know, the iPhone is a great example we've talked about over the years. Uh, just, to, you know, it costs $170 to produce an iPhone and only about uh, $6 worth of the components are Chinese, yet the entire $170 registers as, a, as an import from China. So when you levy taxes on imports from China, you are really levying taxes on the output from Japan, Singapore, Korea, Brazil, Australia, 
the United States and, and just about every other country in the world. Um, so it's, uh, you know, tariffs never make sense in this particular case where China is this export processing economy still uh, that makes use of value added in other countries. Uh, it's uh, particularly silly to engage in this kind of behavior. So with respect to um, the administration, have they made any indication or even nod with respect to the fact that so many global, so many of the supply chains of producers from various countries, you know, e even as just a final step goes through China and would be touched by these tariffs? You know, th they have not. And uh, I, I, I don't think they really care so much uh, that Japanese or European or Korean companies are going to get caught up here. Uh, there's a new sheriff in town. And I, I think, you know, for a while I was under the impression that what Trump really wanted to get out of this trade war is, uh, is a commitment from President Xi to purchase a bunch of U.S. products. He could turn to his base and say, see, I, I got the Chinese to jump uh, uh, when, I, when I demanded it. Um, and, but I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I, I really think that uh, the policy is driven by this, this very economic nationalist view that the United States is this benevolent giant, that we enabled the world to uh, flourish under our leadership. After the Second World War, we rebuilt Europe uh, and Japan. And uh, provided a security blanket. You know, we just had the discussions about NATO uh, this week. We provided the security blanket, uh, and uh, what, did, what did these allies do? They they built up their industries, they subsidized industries, they competed with the United States, and we've been too nice. And as a result of being open, we've enabled Europe and particularly China to catch up to some extent. Uh, and their view is. Why not take the system down? Why not take the global trading system down? Uh, let's let's blow up the rules. We will be hurt by it, but we'll be hurt a lot less than everybody else. So essentially, uh, relative to other countries' well-being, the United States will be much better off, according to the way they think. So, so, so what of the claim that? Uh... It's. It seems like it's becoming more faint of uh, hearing this claim. But what of the claim that, oh, this is all a negotiating tactic to get us to actually freer trade to deal with uh, these the the mercantilist way in which China absorbs the technology of other countries where American producers have to have a Chinese partner and they have to transfer technology to them. Uh, so what of that claim? Well, you know. Uh... We've seen the Chinese respond to Trump's overtures uh, by saying things like, uh, okay, we'll reduce our auto tariffs or we'll open up uh, certain sectors to investment. So they are responding to some extent to, uh, to, to Trump's, I called them overtures, they're really threats. Um, but I, I, I don't think the, the president has, really wants to bargain. And uh, you know the 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 the, the 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 technological mercantilism is a big issue, but the president really hasn't uh, identified what he wants China to do. Um, they're supposed to abandon entirely their Made in China 2025 project. Um, I, he hasn't specified, and it's but it seems like there's no scope for negotiation here. It's uh, it's it's my way or the highway, according to the U.S., and we're willing to blow up the system if you don't uh, if you don't abide. And um, 
And that's that's kind of scary. But that, that, that's what's uh, beginning to dawn on us uh, over these past few weeks because there is no receptivity to the efforts to negotiate on, on the part of the Chinese, on the part of the Europeans, the Canadians and the Mexicans. Uh, we are insisting on poison pills on going 100 percent in our direction, uh, our direction by which I mean the Trump administration's direction. Um, so it, it, they're either going to comply 100 percent with U.S. demands or we're going to let the system uh, collapse. The Senate has uh, responded at least uh, tepidly to begin to uh, reassert its authority with respect to tariffs. A lot of these tariffs have been uh, couched within national security concerns, and the Senate uh, put in a provision in the Farm Bill that would at least begin the process of uh, potentially having the Senate look over these claims of uh, national security interest with respect to uh, tariffs. So do you expect that to go anywhere? These are baby steps, I suppose. It's a, a decent gesture. Uh, what happened, you know, a month or so ago, uh, Senator Corker introduced legislation that would require Congress to vote on any remedy that the president comes up with in a Section 232 case, one of these national security cases. And it would also require Congress to vote on whether or not to repeal the existing um, uh, measures against steel and aluminum. That was uh, blocked from getting onto the defense reauthorization bill. Senate leadership has been cold uh, on the bill. They don't want to cross swords with the president. But what happened yesterday was basically a sense of the Senate motion to say, look, we think that that Congress has a role to play in trade policy. Well, we already knew that. Um, they, they need to do something a little bit more uh, meaningful than this. Uh, there were uh, eight, 11 senators who voted against the motion, all Republicans, uh, many of whom are up for re-election and uh, demonstrating their, uh, their, their fealty to politics more than their constitutional responsibilities. I don't know. Uh, Corker and Flake, both of whom are retiring, <laughs> say that they're, they're going to keep pushing the legislation and they think there may be a vehicle for, to, to bring it to the, the, the Senate floor for a vote at some point. But I don't know exactly how that plays out. Um, I imagine as the economic pain continues to uh, worsen, right now it's not really felt all that on a widespread basis, uh, maybe there will be more interest in doing something to, to challenge the president on this. What, what, what concerns me is you know, workers in places like Harley-Davidson, uh, which just announced last week or two weeks ago that it's going to shift production to, to Europe, workers who may be losing their jobs, their, many of their reactions were, well, we, we think Trump knows what he's doing and, and we got to get behind him and we support his, his efforts here. So, uh, you know, as long as people are conditioned to forego their, their, their short-term economic viability to support some, you know, broad uh, national mission, uh, it's going to take a lot to, uh, to change minds in Congress. Now, uh, let, let's walk our listeners through the, the intuition here. Why would a company like Harley-Davidson that is based in the United States want to move its production to another country in the face of tariffs? That at, at first blush, I can understand if you don't follow this, you would think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, there, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, so one of the reasons I think that, that Trump and Lighthizer are levying all these tariffs is, you know, they're, they're taking a page from history from, you know, the early 80s 
when the threat of auto tariffs compelled Honda to come to the United States and build its first plant in uh, in Marysville, Ohio, and others followed suit. There's this view that, look, if tariffs are going to go up, it's better to operate inside of the tariff wall. I, I don't know that that holds anymore, to be honest. Uh, we have these global supply chains that are much more advanced nowadays than they were back then. And so if a company sets up shop inside of the United States or stays in, in, or a U.S. company stays in the United States because of fear of these tariff walls, they still have to worry about getting supplies in, in, inside uh, in the United States. And at any moment, the tariffs could go up. In the case of uh, Harley, uh, the Europeans were retaliating against Harley for the steel and aluminum tariffs. And the European market is pretty large for, for, for Harley products. So uh, in order to not lose access to the European market, I think that was the primary motive for their announcement of shifting production there. It strikes me that it's easier to destroy a trading relationship than it is to build one. And whatever damage uh, results from these tariffs overseas and in the United States may be disproportionately uh, in the United States to our consumers and producers who rely on imported products. Um, but it seems like that damage is going to be slow to recover, even if it even if it is undone over a, a time period. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. Look, I, I think people who subscribe to Trump's worldview, that the view that trade is a zero-sum game, are happy with his tack because what Trump is saying is we're the world's largest economy. We have trade deficits with most of these major trading partners. So they have more to lose than we have. So I'm going to throw my weight around. So in the short run, you know, there might be some victories there. For example, the Koreans negotiated a deal to get out from under the 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum. They agreed to limit their exports of, of, of steel and aluminum. Uh, so Trump could say, see, I, I got the Koreans to do something. But the medium and long-term consequences uh, are, are hard to predict, but they will be severe. Faith in U.S. leadership is eroding rapidly. There's a huge benefit uh, that we've uh, accumulated over the years for, for being seen as the leader, for having the world's primary reserve currency, which enables us to run trade deficits year after year after year. Um, we, we, we will not appreciate uh, the, the, the luxury of being in that position until we've, we've, we've lost it. And uh, I think other companies, other countries are going to be reluctant to invest in the United States. And if, the, if they're smart, if, if Europe and Japan and, you know, their new, uh, new ally China, <laughs> because they have a commonality of interests, that is in preserving the, 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 the rules-based trading system, if they can stick together and, and prevent the system from imploding entirely, or, or th then we're going to have two trading blocks in the world. It'll be the world minus the United States, and it'll be the United States in an autarkic state. And so it'll be exceptionally difficult for the United States to get back in. And um, so the, the, the long-term costs, of course, are felt after the you know, political horizon of any politician. And, uh, but we're going to have to be dealing with this in, uh, in a few years, and uh, hopefully it dawns on Trump's supporters that uh, that the costs far outweigh any benefits, even if they're just interested in poking the global elites in the eye for their support for globalization over the years. To me, you know, trade is part of the culture war, and that's something they they, they get joy out of seeing Trump, uh, uh, you know, uh, wreck things that in that regard. But 
the cost will be pronounced, and building trade relationships is a long process, and uh, it's and uh, I'm 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 worried about the future. Dan Eikenson directs the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 